peace and joy this Christmas. A message from 1985. We as members of the Maine Air National Guard must realize that peace begins with the individual. And as a military unit, we also strive to maintain that peace. The motto of our command, the Strategic Air Command, is peace is our profession. The results of our inspections by higher headquarters this year reflect unqualified success. The accomplishment of our mission rests upon our outstanding leadership, capability, dedication, and the ability to get the job done. I extend my thanks and appreciation to you for your loyalty and support during this past year and wish you all peace, prosperity, and a happy and safe holiday. Signed, Roy C. Martin Jr., Colonel, Maine Air National Guard, Commander. 34 years later, and we as a nation still promote peace and goodwill, none of which would be possible without our armed forces. I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair, and this is the Maniac Radio Show. This episode's theme is not peace, or even Christmas or the holidays, but more so about the extraordinary airmen we have here at the wing, their impact over the years, throughout wartime, and peacetime. And during this 2019 holiday season, we here at the Public Affairs Shop want to say thank you to all who have helped preserve peace. First up is an interview Senior Master Sergeant Duplain did a couple months back with an airman who made a huge impact during his career, which ended in a decorated and seasoned retirement. Chief Master Sergeant Bob Fair spent 36 years wearing the uniform and helped defend our skies. We were able to get him on the podcast, which is a Christmas miracle in itself, talking about some of his experiences, why he served for so long, and what it meant to him to be a maniac. Here he is. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today I am uh, sitting down with Chief Master Sergeant Bob Fair. He is uh, a longtime boomer out here and someone that uh, is a, has a wealth of experience. And we're just going to, as we're getting close to his retirement, we just wanted to kind of sit down and uh, and see what was going on and kind of hear a back, a back story about how you got here and, and the things that you uh, that you did throughout your career. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so uh, I joined in uh, March of 83. I uh, went into the jet engine shop, uh, stayed there for about a year and a half. Uh, Malcolm Merchant, the gentleman who's long retired now, uh, mentioned to me one day there was a job available in the boom office. A traditional uh, guard boom operator. He said I had to apply. I thought about it, kind of looked into it, and I said, yeah, what the heck. So I threw an application in and interviewed with a large group of people. Back then everybody wanted to be a boom operator. It seemed like uh, I was fortunate enough to get hired by Joe Philippon and his group and uh, joined Ops in 1985 and then went on to Boom School. Got checked out at Boom School, came home, got checked out locally and was a mission qualified Boom operator for quite a while, uh, about six years and I went to, uh, went to instructor school in the early 90s right after Desert uh, Storm uh, and became an instructor, came back and then I was 
my responsibilities had changed vastly then uh, with the responsibilities of being an instructor. I just worked my way up through the ranks uh, from cargo loading training manager to training flight uh, NCOIC to the Stanaval position and to the chief's position, which I was very fortunate to uh, get hired in. Yeah, and the other day at the gym, you were actually telling me that you uh, that you had experience with B-52s and KC-135s. So uh, what was that experience like? Well, I did. Growing up on uh, a farm in northern Maine, we lived off the end of the uh, Lauren Air Force Base runway. And many a morning or night, we'd wake up to either a crop duster, uh, crop dust in the fields, or a flight of B-52s and KC-135s taken off in what I now know are uh, MITOs, um, minimum interval takeoff, uh, cell departures, five ships. Yeah. You know, five five bombers followed by five or six KC-135s. The thunderous roar that they they would lay across the countryside was phenomenal. <laughs> and uh, later I learned flying in that, you know, KC-135 myself what all that felt like and what a water water augmented takeoff was like was pretty tremendous uh, just just a loud loud uh, booming noise you know and uh, you'd be climbing out about three or four thousand feet then the water would run out and it felt like you were in a glider for a while hmm. until everything your senses started picking up the the whine of the jet engines and but it was a pretty phenomenal thing to be part of uh, flying on the A model in the early days, which was mostly at uh, my initial training, because yeah. we had already converted to the E's here. What uh, what did you think you would end up being part of that, or flying, or in the guard, or not really? I mean, I was uh, joining the guard. I always wanted to be in the military, so when I did join the Guard, I thought, there you go, now I'm going to learn my construction trades and uh, do what I really wanted to do in life, and and the the National Guard involvement just kind of morphed into, you know, my career as a boom operator and then full-time position, which is, you know, a very good job to, to, to get into. We talked a little bit about 9-11, so mm -hmm. you want to tell us a little bit about that story, and people haven't seen the Maniac story um, going to that? Sure. I, uh, I came in, I jumped on you know, jumped on the crew, we did our brief, we were refueling the Otis Air National Guard uh, in Whiskey 105, Warning Area 105, and it was a practice nori for them, so they were going to do a lot of, a lot of refueling, a lot of uh, pre-strike, post-strike kind of stuff. Uh, recovery on the ground, getting turned, coming back up in the air. <clears throat> and then, uh, so that was the mission. And then the, we did what we normally do. We pre-flight the aircraft, we take off, and when we're, as we were en route to the area, we heard some radio chatter that there had been an airplane that had impacted one of the towers. And we thought, wow, that's, how could that happen, you know? And then, we were wondering if it was even a valid story, or, or if somebody was confused, or. Right. But then moments later, you could you could hear the hysteria within air traffic control that no, an airplane truly had impacted. And we thought, okay, you know, somebody flying a little airplane maybe got off course, maybe right? Lost the one engine they had, or who knows? 
Well, it certainly wasn't that. It was a large airplane with a few engines and four engines, I suppose. And, uh, you know, it was that how horrific we thought, wow, that's, that's terrible. And then, and then uh, as we're in the area, the other airplane uh, had hit the tower and uh, it, it was just mass hysteria on, on, on the radios and something bad had obviously happened. We knew we had been attacked at that point. It was, it was clearly obvious and they were asking for our support because uh, they had already scrambled F-15s and uh, so we, we said sure where would you like us and they said well can you get close to Manhattan we said we can fly over Manhattan they cleared us direct Manhattan so we established mm -hmm. an orbit pattern right over right over Manhattan and uh, I think we were about 20,000 feet maybe 21,000 feet clear day you could see the towers clearly smoking smoke would rise and it looked like maybe a couple thousand feet and then it would kind of level off and then the jet stream would pick up the rest of the smoke and kind of carry it in, in its path. And uh, you, you could clearly see what was going on because uh, it was a it was a very clear day. And we started refueling the F-15s. They were coming in, and they were all amped up. Uh, you know, they had their their airplanes were fully equipped with ordnance in case they needed it for anything. Because nobody knew at this point in time what was going on. Right now, it was crazy. Uh, and while this whole thing was going on, you know, Flight 93 was not responding to uh, ATC calls. Uh, the Pentagon had been impacted at some point in time that we didn't even know about. Uh, while this whole thing was unfolding below right. us, and we were focusing on refueling the F-15s, and uh, they, you know, they were doing the, the patrols. Of all the area and then nationally all the flying was suspended all aircraft were grounded yeah. they implemented some procedures to clear the skies essentially and and there we were you know the few military planes that were flying that day we continued to refuel until we offloaded all our fuel and we had to uh, essentially declare an emergency to land at McGuire because they had closed the airfield and they were denying us landing initially. They said, no, you, you guys can't land here. There's been a crisis. You need to go somewhere else. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of fuel at that point. You know, they said, unless you declare an emergency, and, you know, you can land. And so we declared an emergency and they let us land. They boarded our airplane and that's when we learned of everything else going on as well. Hmm. So at that time they were actually <clears throat> still a bit confused if where you kind of fit into the whole picture. They were. They weren't. You know. Authorities were not taking any chances. Right. You know, they knew they were talking to a military airplane. They opened the airfield. We landed. They made us stay on the runway. Uh, eventually, we pulled off on a taxiway. Uh, security forces came out. They were all heavily armed. Uh, they got out of their vehicles. We had to drop the ladder down the crew entry chute. We had to have all our IDs ready, and I mean, these guys were out with their weapons drawn towards the aircraft, hmm. just to verify yeah. that we are military in a KC-135 that's on the ramp. Right. But I get it, you know. Uh, 
I mean, later on that day when we finally got cleared to leave there, probably around 4 p.m., even as we took off, we were cleared direct Bangor from McGuire, which is very unusual. You know, there's no civilian airplanes flying at all. Right. And as we were leaving, we were uh, escorted by F-16s, but only after they visually came in to identify that we were obviously the 135 that they were told that was taken off. They didn't want to take any chances, so they, they intercepted us. Right. And Just then to they broke, make a visual. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> then they broke off, huh. went to do their thing. Oh, that's pretty intense. I, I, yeah. I never heard that part of the story. I know we yeah. used to, um, our videographer used to clip of you from the news, and uh, we have that on the on the 9-11 video there. But, yeah, that's that's um, that certainly put, put it in the whole new, uh, you know, yeah. Whole new level for you guys, especially, right. you know, being a military aircraft. Yep. Pretty intense. It was. This before cell phones and, I mean, before uh, smartphones. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you couldn't be checking stuff on the ground or, no. or doing this or that. No. So. And then once uh, once you guys got clear, got back to Bangor, how did things unfold after that for you? Oh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a hubbub of activity. Every every available air crew and maintenance and I think the whole base for that matter and it was it was uh, all hands on deck sort of day well yeah sort of weeks that followed um, but they were generating aircraft sorties left and right they had crew lineups built already they had strip alert assets built already and uh, we were generating every aircraft to fly and and we were we were actively flying when we got back to Bangor they already bunch of guys had already taken airplanes airborne and yeah. gone to certain locations and started their thing, whether they were force extending into a KC-10 or refueling F-16s or F-15s on combat air patrol. Right. And then that, that didn't end for a long time. We found ourselves in a, uh, a status where we, it was just around the clock flying crew resting, flying, crew resting yeah. for days on end, months on end. On the maintenance side, yeah, we even had crews coming in from other aircraft, right. other crews from Utah, yep. uh, maintainers, just because of the, the sheer volume of the work that was going on. Yeah, there. there were many units here. I want to say there was at least five, six, possibly even seven units represented here at one time. Yeah. and then. As time went on, those, those units rotated out, and other units came in and helped. Yeah, yeah, it was it was something. I, mm. That's a crazy story. I appreciate you sharing that with us. What's uh, what's next for you? What's next for me? <laughs> as is you, as he's sitting my here retirement. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've had a few defining moments in my career for sure, and we've talked about a couple. And any let's hear the other ones. The final, well, the final defining moment will be my retirement as I go into that new chapter and uh, look forward to uh, being a retiree and still supporting the main air guard and the, my other family. Yep. Uh, working with people here on whatever it may be and and trying to help recruit people when I can and and be an advocate for the main air guard in every way I can. That, that's exciting in itself. Yeah, no, I'm sure. So, any big plans? You doing anything fun or cool or home projects, home improvement, uh, that kind of stuff? I'm anxious to do some woodworking, more golf, more hunting, 
my wife and I are going to travel. She wants to travel. Uh, I've traveled the globe many times. Right. So uh, it's her turn to travel and enjoy it, and we can do it together. Yeah. Uh, maybe find some places I haven't been, which there's many. Oh yeah. Um, and enjoy that that aspect of life. Uh, our kids are growing up and in college or out of college. One of them. So eventually grandchildren and yeah. that other part of your life, that yeah. other chapter, the things oh, you do. Oh, that's great. So. Yeah, pretty exciting. Um, what, what's any big takeaways from your career? I mean, how, how do you work through those ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of when you feel a bit burned? And, and you, you know, I mean, everyone does it. It happens in, in life, happens in marriage, it happens, you know. It does. And uh, what, what do you think, you know, what, what do you have for advice for people that are coming up and get passed over for a job or didn't get the selected to be the first sergeant, you know, and they have those, those types of ob obstacles, which seem like a big deal at the time, but in, in the larger scope of things, they're, they're minor. What, what's your takeaways from that? Because I'm sure you had your fair share of those. Sure. Well, that was, that was a, you opened up the door there in many ways. <laughs> uh, as you're trying to advance, don't be, don't be alarmed by the setbacks of maybe not getting hired. Uh, understand that there's a lot of qualified people. It's very competitive in a lot of things we do here, from first sergeant positions to superintendent positions to just getting your first job here or right. your second job, whether it's an AGR or technician. It's very competitive, and it's it's good for the organization when it's competitive, and it's good for you. You know, you 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 have to you have to pony up and and. Put in a hard day's work every day. Every every day is a job interview. You have to be competitive. You have to be that person that you know they may want to seek out. You can't let you can't let setbacks like that uh, derail you and and you know cast you aside. You just got to keep keep working at it. Uh, you need to be able to um, step back from something and chuckle at yourself for the blunders you do make yep. you can't take yourself so serious you know all the time and you also got to understand you're not the only person that can do the job that you may be looking towards right. getting getting yeah. hired if you see an opportunity that's career broadening go for it put in for it you you being in the boom shop it's it's always been kind of a coveted mm. to kind of get get into that air crew and then some of the boomers moved up to mm -hmm. pilots uh, Captain Grant is one I worked with in hydraulics, um, and then now he's a he's a commander sitting in the left seat. So uh, pretty crazy. And you you've also turned down people. What when you turn people down for jobs? And you know what what's your advice for them? Or and when those situations do arise, sometimes decisions can be made on the smallest of things within that interview. Have all your all your ducks in a row and have everything in order and do your best. Yeah. Don't be don't be sidelined just because, you know, somebody said no once. Or, right. Because you'll have a lot of no's in life anyway, you know. Yeah. I think there's many boomers up there that have applied more than once, right, that are now boomers Several pilots. times. Several times. Yeah. We've hired people that have applied. They got hired on their third interview hmm. just to be a boom operator, for instance. Right. Uh, and the pilot training thing, not everybody gets picked up. That's very com that's very competitive. Yeah. Because uh, they go up against our internal people here, people within go up against 
people from the outside who have a vast uh, set of skills that they picked up flying for a little commuter airline or their parents owned airplanes or it just things were so different for them they went to college for flying right uh, you know it means a lot here if you if you've been a member of the unit but it's super competitive and yeah. you know they always want to hire the right folks to fly up front which I like that concept yeah no, you know? I've, I've been in the back of a tanker <laughs> yeah. a few times so very thankful for that yeah yeah, and I know that the um, it is very tough. Even the people that are selected, that are that are phenomenal people, don't always mm-hmm. even get through some of the training for the pacing, uh-huh. for you know if they, they can't grab something yeah, at, at an appropriate speed. And then yeah, it's a long school for the pilots, and they yeah. have to uh, they really have to bring it every day for a year, yeah, if not longer. Yeah, and there will be setbacks. There will be setbacks and, and hills to climb and. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's they're not all cut out for it even in the end even after a very rigorous process of selection you know yeah but they all you know, they'll still uh, come back and become you know productive yeah. members of the unit absolutely anything else you want to add anything we didn't hit on you know I will say it's truly been an honor to serve um, and it's a privilege it's not a right some yeah. people kind of get confused on you know, once they become a member out here, they get a job out here. It's, it's, it's not really like a job downtown per se. It is the military, right? And sometimes I think uh, we get, get a little comfortable with, you know, because we're a citizen soldier, that it's just like a job downtown. There are a lot of similarities, right? But in the end, it's a military organization, which, which has been again a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time and. Uh You've been out here a long time. You've touched a lot of people, worked with a lot of people. And uh, so thanks again, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Chief, for doing that interview, and enjoy your retirement. And thank you, Senior Master Sergeant Duplain, for conducting the interview. The senior came back by popular demand, and if I didn't know any better, I'd say he's starting to like this audio stuff. Yeah, that's an inside joke. For those of you who don't know him, He's an audio guru. Thanks again, senior. Alrighty, so we all know the holidays are upon us, and if I don't mention something about safety, Master Sergeant Tamel and Senior Master Sergeant Nadaniah may get angry. Nobody wants that. So please be safe out there, whether you're snowmobiling, having snowball fights, caroling, ice skating, frolicking in the snow, just be safe. A quick shout out to Senior Master Sergeant Tina Mishu because this weekend, she's retiring. It's crazy. She's helped me quite a bit over the years, and when I hear her name, the first thing I think of is selflessness. She drops everything to help a fellow airman out, which is gold. Thank you, Senior, for all of your years of service, and we hope you enjoy your next chapter. Here we are again with another jolly maniac fact. Continuing on with the year 1985, we're going to look at one outstanding enlisted airman who went above and beyond to make a difference. The Marine Corps Marathon was established in 1976, 201 years after the Marine's birth date. The marathon is still held to this day in Arlington, Virginia, and aims to promote physical wellness, generate community goodwill, and showcase the organizational skills of the United States Marine Corps. As it is with any marathon, 
Runners trained for years to prepare for the 26 mile and some change run. And in 1985, one of the event runners was one of our very own maniacs. 20 year old Airman First Class Tim Marquis was one of 11,000 runners that day and one of 40 who represented the Army and Air National Guard. Airman Marquis had proven his worth, so to speak, when the National Guard picked him and 39 others who were top performers at a tryout marathon in Lincoln, Nebraska. 600 other guardsmen tried out as well, but only 40 moved on, including Airman Marquis. He finished the Marine Corps Marathon in one hour and one minute, aiming to symbolize the 101st. No, just kidding. He finished in three hours and three minutes, which is very fast. But like I said, he had been training for a while and was determined to represent the Maniacs. Airman Marquis was a student at the University of Maine in Orono and was an auxiliary ground equipment mechanic here at the wing. Where is he now? Still running a marathon, in a way. He's a highly decorated lieutenant colonel and the commander of the 101st Air Refueling Wing Aircraft Maintenance Squadron. It just goes to show you that even after 34 years, hard work, dedication, and mind over matter will always pay off. As long as you keep putting the right foot forward. And just like Frosty and Too Much Sun, we're all out of time. Yeah, that was corny. But we'll keep it. This is the Maniac Radio Show, and I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair. Again, the holidays are here, so please be safe and make good choices. Speaking of good choices, don't forget about the Safe Maniac program. Don't forget to check out our social media pages as well as our website, app, and past podcast episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Divids, or iHeartRadio, so you won't miss an episode and you'll always be in the know. And with that being said, happy holidays, happy drill, and may the force be with you.